Well, uh, let's begin, and then uh, we'll jump into the book of Joshua. Lord, I thank you. We just want to pray to you this morning for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. You've preserved your holy word all these years for us. Christians can still read of it. Unbelievers can see the gospel in it. And we're just thankful we can go back to the Old Testament and learn from it. Jesus said these words would not pass away. And uh, we, we look forward to learning from the book of Joshua today. Help us to learn how we can apply some of this teaching to us. Help us to see the mistakes that Israel made so that we don't make them. And help us to see your holiness and your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Joshua. So we've been working through the Old Testament here. We're done with the first five books, the Pentateuch. And now we're moving into another set of books that begin with Joshua. This other set is called the Former Prophets in the Hebrew Bible. But in your Bible, we often in English refer to it as what? We don't say the Former Prophets. We say turn to the section of books, Joshua through Kings, the historical books. Why do we call them the historical books? Because they teach us the history of Israel. What happened when they came into the land up until the point where they were taken away to Babylon. And so this is often referred to as historical books. But the Hebrews and, and even the, I believe, the uh, old Bible that Jesus would have used in Hebrew would have had it uh, in this order here. And he would have referred to them as the former prophets. We often call the latter prophets prophets, don't we? Isaiah, prophet. Prophecy of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets. But Joshua judges, they had one book of Samuel and one book of Kings. These are called the former prophets. Now we divided up, or we didn't, but the, the, the Greek translators into the Septuagint uh, divided up 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st uh, and 2nd Kings. Probably because the scroll wasn't big enough for, originally the Hebrew scroll wasn't big enough for all the book of Samuel. So you had to put the first part on the first scroll and the second part on the second scroll. Uh, that's possible and probably likely. And so when they translated it into Greek, they just went ahead and, and kept it divided. Uh, same thing with Kings. We'll see the same thing later with Chronicles. So these are the former prophets. The latter prophets are these other books over here. The 12 minor prophets all combined into one scroll. And they usually just call that the 12. So we'll talk more about it when we come to the minor prophets. But we often think of them as individual books. Uh, the Hebrew people link them closer together. Look at how important these books are as far as just percentage. If you're looking at my chart up here, this is 23% of the Old Testament. It's pretty important. A fourth of your Old Testament are these former prophets, historical books. We went through one of them in men's Bible study. We did 1 Samuel last year. Wasn't that great? Guys, you could make it. We all learned quite a bit of, of Saul and Samuel. What books are missing from this column that we normally have in there. What books are missing? In other words, which ones should we take from here and insert them back over into that former prophets? So if you know your English Bible, you've got Joshua, Judges, then what comes next? Ruth. So Ruth, in their mind, was not a prophet. The, the book of Ruth is not a prophecy written by a prophet. It is part of the writings, which is this last set over here. So Ruth would be inserted there for our English Bibles. We want to go more chronological. And then what else? Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. What do we normally put in there? Esther. 
right? Esther, we do Chronicles. So that's our English order, but in their mind, that's just the four. Now we're going to go in English order here, but I want you to realize there's going to be a transition here uh, in our Bibles. We started with first five books. Who wrote those? Moses wrote those. What are they for? The Pentateuch, the first five books are to describe where we came from, where God's people came from, the line of Abraham, and then how God has rescued them out of Egypt and brought them to the edge of the promised land. He's also given them laws to live by. They say, we're your people, God. And God says, here's how you should live then. And so we just covered Deuteronomy last week where he went through all those laws to the new generation, reminded them of how they're supposed to live before God. Now Moses has died and he's passed it on, his leadership on to Joshua. This is a good graphical illustration of the former prophets. The first half of it really is leading up to David as being king over all Israel. Then after David, we have Solomon and things began to decline to the fall of David's line in Second Kings. At the end of Second Kings, they go into captivity. So what's, what's the rise of David's line? Well, that's in Joshua and Judges. But it's not too far into Judges before we see idolatry. We'll look at that, I think, next week, where the, the people began to worship idols once again. God has saved them. He took them to Mount Sinai. They already start worshiping a golden calf. It's not going to be long before they start worshiping idols. And what else do they do? They want a king. They want a king like the other nations. They start claiming that. And, and even in Judges, it says there's no, there was no king over Israel in those days. People did whatever they wanted. Then David comes, and he is the pinnacle. He is the, the ruler. He is the pre-messianic figure. He is ruling over the throne of David that God gives him. And then, of course, he's not perfect, though. He's a sinner. And because of his sin, God said he would take the kingdom out of the hands of his son. Solomon comes. What does Solomon do? The wealthiest, the wisest, had the most servants, the biggest army, the most territory of any king in Israel. And what does he do? Marries 300 plus women, adds another few hundred concubines, and lets them all bring their gods into Israel and set up places of worship where the people then go. And now they're falling even further into idolatry. That's why they're eventually taken out of the land. So the former prophets cover a lot. You can see from the timeline here. 1406 B.C., that's when Moses dies, all the way to 586 is when they are taken into captivity in Babylon. Psalms is spread out because there's different ones. You have Psalms of Moses. You have one from Moses. You have Solomon, lots from David, um, all the way up to when they're in captivity. So it's spread out. And I think each book of the four books is added in together but we'll get to that when we when we cover psalms it's a good question though yeah so these here carl uh, on this side over here the, the writings are written at various times various times all right now let's uh, just get some information on the former prophets uh, the jews call them the prophets i said and that's uh, in the new testament as well what does jesus say what does jesus say moses and the prophets, and the Psalms, which is kind of shorthand for the writings. Moses, sometimes just Moses and the prophets. And then Jesus says in Luke twenty four forty four, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. 
And we just call them historical books. What do they cover? The former prophets, these, these first ones we're going to look at, they give a continuous history of Israel and the land through the eyes of the prophets. Remember, prophets aren't just predicting the future, are they? What, a, what is a prophet? Prophet's a mouthpiece of God, a spokesperson for God. Sometimes they point people to the past. Much of Isaiah and Jeremiah is pointing people back to the law, back to the Torah. Sometimes prophets talk about the present, and sometimes they prophesy in the future. But the, what makes a prophet is they're speaking God's words. The latter prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, the minor prophets, they indict the law-breaking of Israel. So now once Israel has fallen into idolatry, they've abandoned God's law, they, the latter prophets call them back to it. You should obey, or are you going to be punished? So that's an overview of where we're going probably in the next couple of months. All right, let's look at Joshua. Everybody got a handout that wants one? If you, if you didn't get one, I think they're sitting right in front of Brandon, right by Sue there. Muriel needs one. And Muriel, you asked me about that book I recommended a few weeks ago. I think the one you're referring to is called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I meant to bring it up here, but I think we have that now in the bookstore. It's Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And sorry, I, I, I thought you were referring to the one I recommended during the service. Knowing God by J.I. Packer is a great book. Uh, today we're going to talk about God's wrath and God's holiness. And it just helps you. It's a, it's a book that helps you know who God is. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Okay, what do we call Joshua? We say, Joshua, where do we get that? Well, the Hebrew is Yehoshua. Yehoshua, the Lord is salvation. But that gets translated into Greek, Iesus. Iesus. So what does Iesus sound like? That's, that's the Greek name for Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, which is just a way of saying Jesus in Spanish. Yeah, Iesus. And so Jesus' uh, Hebrew name would be uh, Joshua or Yehoshua or shortened to Yeshua. Yeshua, Iesus in Greek. And then we, it goes into Latin and then it comes into English as Jesus. The author, I think, is Joshua. Of course, we still have that little segment at the end about his death, just like we had in Deuteronomy with Moses. But either Joshua trained up somebody to finish the book or maybe Samuel finished Joshua. Again, uh, the names aren't inspired. If they were inspired, then you know we would have some trouble in, in Deuteronomy. Because what happened in the first five books? The names in Hebrew were always, whatever that first word was, that was the name. Well, this one's not, these are the words. right Now, even the Hebrews are starting to name the books after the person. Do you have something? Somebody said something? No? All right, what's the theme? The theme, the shortened down sort of few words. What is the theme of the book? Conquer and divide. First half of the book is about conquering. Second half is about dividing. Dividing into different portions for the 12 tribes. If we were to expand that a bit, I think my uh, seminary professor, Dr. Essex, gives a nice purpose statement here. Why, why is it in the book? Yahweh, that's the personal name of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh gave the land of Canaan to Israel through holy war in accordance with his promise to Abraham and Israel and they dwelt in part of the land according to her faithful obedience to Yahweh. So that's the purpose. God gave them the land. They were to go in it, to conquer it, and to dwell in it. Now you're going to notice a few important things here. Part of the land, that's going to come up later. Maybe we'll get to that uh, interpretive issue today. 
They did not dwell in all the land that God gave them. We'll have to ask why that is. We also will have to talk about holy war. What is it? Should we, should we practice it today as Christians? I think you, you know the answer to that, but other religions do practice holy war. And what is this about the promise to Abraham? So we'll come back to those. Outline. A lot of uh, books are debated how you divide it up. This one's pretty easy. Conquer, divide. Now, after that, we can argue over how the best way to divide it up is. But it's helpful to think about an outline, particularly if you're ever going to teach this book or maybe preach this book. Some of you men might preach this book. And how would we chop this thing up and think about how God has ordered it, how God has structured it through the Holy Spirit's inspiration? So chapters 1 through 12, let's just breeze through those in your Bible. Hopefully you got to read some Joshua before you came to class. But if not, let's take a quick tour. So start in chapter 1, and we're going to see a bit of a recap. It's going to go back and talk to us about what happened at the end of Deuteronomy. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm going, uh, which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's an important um, fact to remember. From the great river in the south to the river Euphrates, all the land, I'm sorry, the great river is Jordan. From Jordan to the Euphrates, but there's also a southern border we'll come back to. All the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. God is just saying, the land that I promised Abraham, go and take it. Go. Go into the land and take it. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. So Joshua is kind of like the new Moses. He's not going to get the face-to-face interaction with God that Moses had. Only Moses had that. But God reassures him, this is God's chosen man to lead the people. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. And then Joshua assumes command in chapter 1. He's got this commission from the Lord. And he's going to take the people in. He's going to fight. So the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is getting ready for the fight. They're going to send in spies. There's the the Rahab incident where Rahab the harlot hides them and then sends them out another way. We're going to come back to Rahab. Then uh, chapter 3. They're going to go in an orderly fashion across the Jordan River. There's going to be this dividing of the waters. What does that remind you of? Dividing of the waters? Moses, you think of that as the great miracle. But it's also a miracle here that God parts the Jordan River and they go across. Uh, Then they build the memorial stones in chapter 4 to remember what God has done for them. Then the people get consecrated as as they go into the land. They have to be circumcised. And then the second uh, B part B under that. They come into the middle and then they take over that area and then they're supposed to spread out and grow in their settlements from there as they attack. They mainly just go south and then quit. And then they, they do a northern campaign, but it's rather, it's rather weak, it's rather short-lived. They don't go far enough to the north. Second major division, uh, dividing up the land. God cares about where each tribe goes He cares how much land they get. 
He has designated those things. And so we see in chapter 13, all the way to 22, he's dividing up the land. You think God cares about the details? People say God doesn't really care about the details. It doesn't matter what you do sometimes. God doesn't care. But God is, is orderly. He's specific. And we see um, he divides up the territory. He, he allocates cities to the tribes. And then there's contention about the altar there in chapter 22. Then at the very end, we see Joshua's addressing the people and his death. Let's go to chapter 23. So this is, Moses had lots of farewell addresses. He had five big sermons in Deuteronomy. This is Joshua's farewell address. Uh, Chapter 23, Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. And Joshua was old, advanced in years. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to you to all those nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. It wasn't them at all. It was God fighting for them. Yeah, they had to go and fight, but it was actually God ensuring that they won. It was God making them. It was God um, energizing them. It was God doing it all so they should praise him for it. So he goes on to preach this farewell message. And in chapter 24, he reviews the specifics of their history. All the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, how they went down to Egypt. And in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. So he says, don't, don't be idolatrous. There were some of our people there that served idols in Egypt. Put away those things and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers serve, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very popular verse there. Some people, you know, inscribe this verse on their foundation when they're building a house. But the context is, he's about to die. And he is saying to the people, again, You have to be reminded constantly, just like we do as New Testament believers. We have to be reminded constantly, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. Don't serve your own desires. Don't serve other gods. Don't serve money. Don't serve wealth. Don't serve success. Serve the Lord your God. And he says, I'll serve God. My family is going to serve God. My house is going to serve the Lord. And he wants them to as well. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who has brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of the bondage, and who did this, these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. So they go on to say they will serve God. How are they going to do? Well, this generation, we we don't know that this generation turned away from that, but the next generation will. Their children will. In the book of Judges, certain tribes will begin to turn away from the Lord. So that will will start a process of idolatry. But uh, it seems like these people went into the land 
at least by this point, at the end of Joshua, they are dedicated to the Lord. They bury Joshua. Verse uh, uh, verse 29, it came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. So he's probably the oldest one. Uh, Remember, all his generation died when? In the wilderness. In the wilderness. Everyone over 20 years old was to die in the wilderness, except for Caleb and Joshua. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Sarah, which is the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, so they did do what he called them to do here. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. That kind of tells us when this book ends. It's, it ends, the ending date on this is going to be when those elders that were with Joshua eventually died. He died, and the elders serving in the land also died. That ends the timeline of this book. Now they buried the bones of Joseph. You see, they brought Joseph's bones out of Egypt, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt as Shechem, and the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. They became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So that ends the book. And that helps us date it, as I said. What's the date? Well, we know the start date's the death of Moses. And we can date that pretty accurately if uh, the Exodus happens in, in uh, what is it, 14, 1446? Is that right? And then we have uh, 40 years. And we're subtracting because we're BC, so we're going down. So 1446, subtract 40, 1406, that's when Moses dies. Now they're going into the land in 1406. That starts the book of Joshua. We have to estimate on when these elders died. Probably to the death of the elders is around 1375 B.C. I just read that passage to you. And uh, you, could, you could open the range up 1390 to 1360 B.C. Somewhere in there. 1375 sounds good. Key chapters. We just went through some of those. God gave a charge to Joshua. Joshua doesn't get to go and do what he wants. He doesn't get to go and have his best life now. It is going to be his best life now, of course, but... You know, he's not prosperity preacher here. Uh, there's going to be trials. There's going to be troubles. Not everything's going to go perfect. The people are sometimes going to rebel uh, in the book. Um, but God has given him this charge. He has to do it. It's just like any man, I, th- I feel like any man called the ministry has a kind of charge like this. Not that we hear God's voice. But I have to stand up here and preach the word of God to you today. Or I am being unfaithful. Joshua has to do what what God tells him to do, or he is being unfaithful. And he has already shown himself to be a man of faith, all the way back with the spies incident in Numbers. So he's going to go and serve the Lord. Jericho falls in chapter 6. Probably all heard of Jericho. Let's go back to chapter 6. One of the issues with this book, the book of Joshua, with with liberals and unbelievers, which are kind of the same thing, right? Liberals and unbelievers. But, But... Liberals who study the Bible and make a living out of it and write books to sell to people. They don't like that there's not much archaeological evidence of Joshua's, uh, of Israel coming in with Joshua and conquering all these cities. Because they just come in and conquer everybody. You know, God is their God and he is making sure this happens. And so they say, well, there's not much archaeological evidence. Well, I think there is and they're discovering more. We don't base our, our faith on archaeology. But when it comes to Jericho... 
There's a lot of archaeological evidence. They have found the wall of Jericho, uh, the, the one that's buried way down in the ground, and only a few towers and things are left because you know, it fell down uh, so the people could march in. But they found towers built out of rock that were probably on the corners of these walls going back thousands of years, thousands of years. And it probably was part of that wall as the people marched in. So they come in, and uh, chapter 6, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. So they're fearful, they're scared. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. All seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall bow, uh, shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man, and straight ahead. Did it happen? It did happen. It did happen. All of that is to show the people of that land that God is a powerful God, that God is a mighty God, that God is with His people, and to show the Israelites the same thing. God is a powerful God. God is a mighty God. God will do what He's promised for them. So the city falls down. And once Jericho falls, you can just imagine the Canaanites. How fearful would you be if the most fortified city in the land, the oldest city, so some people were even... Even unbelievers refer to Jericho as one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world because they can find so much stuff down in the ground. How would you feel if that was just decimated? The biggest wall in the area, and it's completely flattened. They didn't have to do anything but march around it, blow these trumpets, these strange people out there doing strange things. The wall falls down. They all come in and kill everybody. I think I'd pack my bags if I was a Canaanite. Either I would convert quickly or, or try to get behind the army and you know, convert, Lord willing, God's grace. So Jericho falls. But we have this interesting, um, chapter 7 is interesting, the sin of Achan. So go to 7.16. There's going to be a rebellion of Achan. Uh, he's going to keep some things he shouldn't have kept. So Joshua arose early in the morning, brought Israel nearby tribes. The tribe of Judah was taken. So what's happened here? is that um, the Lord has struck some of them down. He wants to know what, what's, what's going on here. Uh, he brought the family of Judah near. He took the family of the Zerophites, and he brought the family of Zerahites near, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And so it goes on down through this. In the verse 19, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. And give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So people are suffering. We're going to suffer as a nation. What is going on here, Achan? What have you done? Because we just, we just drew straws and we went all the way down through the family lines. And you're the man. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold of 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent. 
with the silver underneath it. Not supposed to keep those things. But, you know, we're conquering these cities. I, I found some things I liked. It's no big deal, right? God doesn't mind. I mean, it's just a little sin. Just a, You know, I took some nice things. I wanted them. I took them and I hid them. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent. They brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. They poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all of Israel went with him took Achan the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stone. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. God takes sin seriously. And and this is a a major rebellion. It breaks the the commandments that God gave them. It breaks the, the, the Mosaic commandments to follow the Lord and do what he says. And this is capital punishment offense in that day. Because if you had one man in Israel who was willing to go against God, And his family's with him. This is no small family, right? It's going to be the slaves he's picked up along the way. All of his family. He's probably an older gentleman by this point. All of his animals are even. The oxen, the donkeys, what'd they do? The sheep. They didn't do anything. They're part of his possessions. And this is a way of saying, we don't want anything to do with that. We don't want the silver that he stole. We don't want his donkeys. No one's touching his stuff. It's all going down and being covered up by rocks. Because what's going to happen if a guy like this gets into the nation? Probably already had a prominent voice. What's going to happen? He's going to get more people attracted to his cause, right? He disobeyed God and got away with it. It'll be okay if we join. It's no big deal. My family will we'll buddy up next to Achan, and, and maybe eventually we could throw off Joshua. So God takes it serious. The people took it serious there too. All right, I won't go through all of these chapters, but Gibeonites, deceitful covenant. In chapter 9, the Gibeonites, they come and they, they act like they're someone else. They make a little treaty with the Israelites, and the Israelites agree to not harm them. Later they find out they were, they were not who they said they were, but they still honor the treaty. Uh, 13 through 19 is division of the land, where the Levites will have their cities of refuge. Cities of refuge were important. If a, if a man needed to go somewhere because there was going to be revenge taken out on him, he accidentally did something that hurt somebody or killed somebody, he could run to one of these cities of refuge. And they were to take him in and protect him until the court could happen. Let's look at some key passages. Uh, 1, 7 through 9. This is uh, what I've already read most of it, but God is speaking to him. And he says... Uh, really starts in verse 6. Be strong, courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land. So he tells them, be strong. Again in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Why? Because the people are going to resist him sometimes. The, the Canaanites are going to resist him. And of course, being human, he's going to have his own doubts. He's going to have his own fears. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. He's not saying, go do what I say so you can be saved. He's already saved. They're already supposed to be God's people. They already claim to be saved. Now that you're saved, go and do what I told you. Go and obey. And it will go well with you. You'll stay in the land. You'll be blessed. But if you don't, Moses said back in Deuteronomy, if you don't, you'll be taken out of the land. You'll be cursed. This book of the law you shall not depart from, from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Probably talking about Deuteronomy there. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a good verse for Christians, I think. I mean, we're not Joshua. We're not taking the armies into the land. We're not guaranteed 100% success in everything we do, like, like this case. But I think that's, that's good. We can, we can take the principles there and apply them to the Christian life. Don't fear. Don't fear the world. Don't fear Satan. Don't even fear your own flesh. I mean, fear it in the sense that you're killing the sin inside you. But, but don't think that you can lose your salvation. Don't think that the world can do something to, to cause you to lose it. Be strong and courageous because God has spoken to us, not audibly, but in the Bible. We have this. So we shouldn't fear when our country is going to start persecuting someday uh, people who don't have a, a view of marriage like the world has. People are going to hate Christians more and more as the world turns its own way in the Western world. Chapter 10. I'll just read this to you. We're going to come back to it as an interpretive issue. Because how did this even happen? Joshua 10. Joshua tells the sun to stand still in verse 12. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites for the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel. So he's on the attack here. And he doesn't have enough time to, to do what he needs to do and defeat these guys. So he says, O sun, stand still at Gibeon. O moon, in the valley of Ajilon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So this is another book, but it's not an inspired book. It's not a biblical book. It's just, we might say, a history book. Is it not also written in that history book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Why would, why would God do that? Because he's appointed Joshua as his leader of the nation. And whatever Joshua says here is in line with what God already wants. So it's like a prayer asking God to do this, and God did it. And so they were able to conquer and slaughter all of those enemies. And then we already read 24, 14. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That ought to be the thinking that we have. We ought to, we're going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to serve God the Father as Christians. This is a great verse to have even in, uh, as New Testament believers. Who are the key people here? We've got Rahab. We're going to read Rahab's story in a moment. But Rahab's a Gentile woman. She's an ex-harlot in Jericho. She gets converted to worship Yahweh, which is the Israel's God. She helps the spies who came in. She's the, not the father, the mother. 
Mother of Boaz. Sorry, I got to change that. I just can't look at that. And not in today's world, right? When men are supposedly having children. What does your notes say? Oh, that was my fault. Because um, I, was, I was thinking of how Boaz is ultimately the father of David down the line. So, all right. Um, so she's the mother of Boaz, husband of Ruth, and they're in the messianic line of Jesus. So here's a Gentile woman who was a harlot, a prostitute, who gets converted and is now, we're told in the New Testament, part of the line of the Messiah. She's already pointing to God's grace at the beginning of the book of Matthew, just with the line of Jesus. Then we have Joshua himself. Think about Joshua. He's born under Egyptian slavery. He's trained by and becomes Moses' successor. He's an outstanding leader. He's a faithful servant of the Lord, the oldest Israelite in Canaan. He's seen it all. He's seen slavery, bondage. He's seen 40 years of wandering in the wilderness while all his friends and relatives die. And now he gets to go into the land and see uh, God fulfilling the promises that he made. And we just read about Achan. Uh, Achan was the reason they lost the battle at Ai or I. He took spoil that was under the ban. When confronted with his sin, he confessed, yet he and his family were stoned and burned. So had they not done it that way, had they not taken care of Achan, they would have just kept losing battles. They already had lost the battle of Ai. They have to deal with the rebellion in their midst. If we just compared, I think this is a nice chart that I got from Dr. Essex's notes here. Just compare Moses and Joshua. They both have an encounter with the Lord. They both have this miraculous water crossing. Moses in the Red Sea and uh, Joshua in the um, Jordan River. They both intercede for sinning people. They intercede. They ask the Lord to not punish the whole nation because of sin. They both wrote law on stones. They both um, listened, or I'm sorry, Yahweh, the God of Israel, listened to the voice of these men, each of them. And the enemy's heart was hardened. Now we know Pharaoh's heart was hardened for the purpose of Moses going there and everything happening the way God wanted it to. But Joshua 11.20, it even says his enemies are hardened against them. Uh, go to Joshua 11.20. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. This is part of God's sovereignty. The people, they already wanted to fight, but God hardened their hearts, gave them over to their sin to meet Israel in battle so that they would be utterly destroyed. So God is already pronouncing some judgment upon them by hardening their hearts. They already wanted to go fight, but this ensured that they would. A couple of commentaries I might recommend on this. I really like uh, David Howard. I don't like him on the sun standing still because he doesn't take a very good view on that, but majority uh, of the commentary is really good. Uh, I've been recommending this New American Commentary series, so if you ever teach on it or want to study it in some detail, that's a good one to get. Uh, second is Dale Ralph Davis. This is a set of his sermons entitled Joshua, No Falling Words. Dale Ralph Davis is a funny guy. Uh, if you listen to his sermons online, he's from Tennessee, probably the, I think the hills of Tennessee, and he's got this accent, and he'll just tell these stories, a lot of stories sometimes. But he's, he's a Presbyterian guy. We won't hold that against him. But he, uh, he has some great uh, sermon series on these historical books in the Old Testament. 
And I find that he really helped bring some of these Old Testament historical accounts over into our lives as Christians and how we can apply them. Okay, let's look at some interpretive problems. These are not, of course, problems for God. These are not problems for Joshua who wrote the book. These are problems for us as we try to understand the book. And really the first two aren't problems for us. They're problems for people out there. Um, But we'll get to some that I think are more difficult problems for us. What kind of conquest was this? Was it, as Joshua says, they all come in together and they attack and they conquer? That's what the book says. But, you know, some people have problems with that. They don't like the fact that God told them to go and and kill. God told them to go and defeat them, defeat the Canaanites. Others say there's no archaeological evidence. But, you know, Israel's eventually in the land. We know that, at least by the time that the Greeks and Romans are there. So they say, well, Israel just peacefully infiltrated. They just sent a few people in, just kept sending a few people in over the years. And it just, you know... All the Canaanites died off or moved out, and all the Israelites moved in. So eventually, by the time of Jesus, you've got the people of Israel living in the land. doesn't match the Bible, so we're going to go ahead and cross that out. Peasants revolt. You know, there's these people called Hebrews living amongst the Canaanites. One day, they just up and decide to revolt. They take over the land. That's why it's called Israel. Is that what the book says? Is that what Joshua says? My favorite, agricultural resettlement are the emergence of Israel model. This is a funny one. You've got these people in the land of Palestine, and they're hunter-gatherers. And then you've got these people outside the land, and they're farmers. That's Israel. And they just keep battling back and forth like tribes battle. And eventually the farmers went out and take over the land to farm it. That's not really my favorite. I was being sarcastic. It's funny, though. So what's the right answer? What the book says right there, um, Unified Military Conquest. So if you're circling answers, circle A. The Bible does not support the rest, but you need to kind of know they're out there because people will sometimes talk about these liberal ideas. Okay, here's one that you might be interested in. The land promise of the Abrahamic covenant. This is kind of a big deal amongst some. Some, I think, get this wrong and say that it's completely fulfilled. And I don't think that's, That's not necessarily a a heretical view. I mean, let's look at a few verses. Uh, Joshua 21, 43. Good good and godly men and women can take different viewpoints here. 21, uh, 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. Let's go back to 10, 40. So if if we just looked at one verse, it seems to be settled, you know. Circle A and we're done. But that's not how doing theology works. We have to look at all the verses on the subject. And we have to use our minds to think about them. 1040. Frank, you get that? 40 through 42. Joshua and Israel with him returned to the camp of Gilgal. 
So God gave them the land, said go in. They go in, and as far as Joshua is concerned, the, the book of Joshua, they defeated them all, and all the ones Joshua went up against, they defeated all the kings. Now there's another view that says that it's not been completely fulfilled. It's not been completely fulfilled. So they did not get all the land yet that God had promised to Abraham. So we have to go back to Genesis to see that. But I already read to you at the beginning of, of Joshua the, some of the limits of the boundaries here. And this, this becomes an issue when, it, when we're looking at the future, when Christ returns. Will there be, a, will there be a, a, a Israel in the future that is a believing Israel? The millennial kingdom? And some would say, you know, no, they've already received all the land and they were rejected by God. And others would say the church is Israel. Israel had the land. They were rejected by God. God fulfilled his promise here. Now he's done. Now the church gets spiritually all the benefits that were promised to Israel physically in the Old Testament. So let's read Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt. That's probably the brook of Egypt, but some say the Nile. As far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's a big territory. That's not what Joshua went in and took over. He, he took over as much as he could before he died, but he didn't get all of that. Now we go forward to Judges, which is after Joshua. They did not drive them out. And he just keeps going. Naphtali did not drive them out. They didn't drive them out. They didn't kill them all. They, they took, hey, we got forced labor. We got some free workers. I killed these people. You know, let's, let's just have them work for us. Free labor, slavery. And, and, you know, our families are a little bit tired. They're a little bit worn out. We've seen enough, enough death in one generation. You know, our father saw enough death with Joshua and, and all the battles. Let's just have a peace. Let's just all get along. Why can't we just all get along? So the second review would be, it's not been completely fulfilled based on those verses, the promise to Abraham, what actually happened after Joshua. Yes, Yahweh gave the land, but they failed to completely and continually possess the land. It wasn't just that God gave it to them. They were supposed to settle in it, live in it, and be the only people essentially living in the land. They could, they could take in outsiders, but only if they converted to faith in their God. So you've probably seen this before if you took me took the class in um, Biblical Doctrine 4. So modern Israel today is pretty much what they took when they came in. Of course, there are some areas that modern Israel doesn't even have today that, that Joshua had. So that's pretty much the boundary with a little bit more right there because there were some battles there and they asked if they could have that land, Manasseh. So Manasseh and Ephraim, and they got to have some land on the east side of the Jordan. So that's pretty much what they got. What did God promise Abraham? Well, he said, from the brook right here. So the southern border is pretty good, because it's mostly desert down there, so nobody really cares as much about the desert until oil is discovered, and then it becomes a bigger issue. But Okay, so they come into the land, they take the red, which is pretty much the borders of modern-day Israel. But God said to Abram, I'm going to give it all the way up to the Euphrates. Where's the Euphrates? Right there. You see that green line? That's the Euphrates River. Has Israel ever had land up all that far to the north? 
And I, we don't even know where this, this is supposed to cut over. Some would say here and then maybe that. You know, if you take it all the way to the Euphrates, and it would be pretty much that. And then he says all the way up to the land of the Hittites, which lived up here. So that's the northern border. And elsewhere, it will say the land of Sidon, Tyre and Sidon, which is right there. And Israel's never took possession of Tyre and Sidon. This is actually, if you can see that, that's actually pretty much what they did when they came in with Joshua. They cross the Jordan, they come into the land, they take the middle, they go south and take that, and then a few tribes eventually make it up north. But there's some tribes like Asher and Dan, they, they just don't really don't want to go and fight. They don't think anybody's going to go with them to fight because it's way up there and everybody's already got their cities and their home. And they're kind of scared. They don't really want to fight. And some people won't go with them. You know, we've already got our house. We've settled. We're not going. I'm not taking, I'm not taking my boys up to fight up there. And so they just give up and along the coastlines. I mean, look at this. Where are all these Philistines coming from in the book of First and Second Samuel? Where are the Philistines coming from in Judges? They're coming from these coastal cities that they never fully conquered. They got lazy after Joshua died. They didn't follow the Lord's command. And they just sort of rested on their laurels and took it easy. So they never even did what they were supposed to do in the book of Joshua, much less all the land that was promised to Abraham. I think you got another one here. So some will say, well, later, Solomon, he gets all the way up to the Euphrates in Solomon's kingdom. Well, he still doesn't have Tyre and Sidon here, which God said they would have. And he doesn't have this segment here, all the way up to the Hittites, really, right here. And not only that, but who lives in these areas during the time of Solomon? Other people. This isn't Israelites living in the red zone. This is Solomon subjugating other nations, like Aram, and making them pay tribute to Solomon. The Israelites don't live there. But it's part of, you know, it's a, it's a vassal kingdom. So even under Solomon and David, you don't see all that God has promised. I think that's still yet to come in the millennial kingdom. All right, so what am I going to choose? Uh, I think I'm going to go with not completely fulfilled because God did give the land. They didn't even go in and take it all. We just saw that. And Judges tells us they didn't take it all. What's the point of that little thing that Jerry just read in Judges? They did not do what God said. They failed to do it. They failed to do it. They failed to do it. Okay, the lie of Rahab. We're going to have to save this one until next week. The lie of Rahab. Did she even lie? Is it okay to lie in, in wartime? Is it not a big deal? God overlooks it. Um, all kinds of ways that people deal with it. Let me just read a little bit to you in chapter 2. Um, you can think about it. You can chew on it. You have all the options there. Study up on it next week. Frank will come back and tell us what the right answer is. You're here. You're right on the second row. I can pick on you. So Rahab, then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So let's skip down to verse 8. So she tells them, Lay down, hide out. They can spend the night there. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord, I mean, she's using the personal name of God. This is not, this is not a name that Gentiles, they're not going to use that name. This is the name of Israel's God. So we already see Rahab having faith here. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. So they had heard all the way back 40 years ago what happened when they came up out of Israel. This is news that spreads fast to the ancient world. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's her confession. That's her faith right there being expressed. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sister, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the man said to her, our life. So they make a promise. They make a promise. Let's go back. Uh, where is it? Three or 30? Three. Three. Oh, the king of Jericho went, sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So they're hiding out. She makes up the story. And then later she does send them out the correct way to stay away from the king's men. So what are we going to do with that? Because... She's mentioned in the New Testament in the line of faith. She's in the line of Christ. She's in uh, Hebrews 11, role of the faithful. What are we going to do with Rahab's lie? Well, I'll let you solve that on your own. Until next week, we'll come back and talk about it then. Lord, I'm thankful for our study this morning. Bless now our time of worship, please, Lord, as we sing your praises, as we pray to you, as we hear the word preached. Give us a heart that wants to love Christ more, and let us see in your word all the truth that we need for salvation and for sanctification. And I pray and ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen.